Hello to all my fellow 101 History uh, podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you uh, have had a good weekend, and I also hope that all of you have had a good start to your uh, week. Hard to believe that this is, um, or rather I should say hard to believe today marks the first full week uh, to the start of April, technically being the first uh, full week of April. I also find it hard to believe that uh, tonight, in just a short while, wherever you may be living in the United States, that this will be the final night of the uh, March Madness NCAA tournament. It should be a good game between Connecticut and San Diego State. We do have an underdog who has never made it as far as they have, and we have another team being that of uh, UConn or the University of Connecticut who's won at least three or four national championships. But here we go, folks. We have David playing against Goliath. Yes, Connecticut's had a great basketball program for some time. I consider them to be a Goliath, given that they've won multiple NCAA championships. And we have a David in San Diego State, who has never won an NCAA championship. They've had a a decent basketball program, but the fact that they've never made it as far as they have in, in terms of tournament play, and here they are playing tonight on the big stage with the great with a chance with some chance that they might be able to win it all if san diego state did win it all to me that would just be um a story it would just be a a remarkable story knowing that um that an average joe team was able to do something that um, most people would have just written off uh, as just being impossible so it's always good to hear those uh stories even in um even in college athletics, regardless of whether it's uh, Division One, Two, II, or Three. Well, you know, we're not um, too terribly far from ending another uh, book topic uh, podcast series uh, discussion. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, when is the exact, uh, when are we going to get to that uh, climactic ending point to the Boston Massacre of Family History? Well, in this uh, podcast episode segment, we're going to uh, learn about the uh, trial involving the soldiers, given that from the last time I was on the air with you all, we talked about um, Captain Thomas Preston uh, getting acquitted. So now we have to learn uh, whether or not uh, the jury will be the same as it was from Captain Preston's trial, that is, are the same jurors going to be hearing uh, the case of the soldiers like they did in uh, Captain Preston's trial, or uh, perhaps will a new measure or two come into play where uh, jurors could be uh, chosen outside of Boston? I'm not trying to give anything away, but we do might need to uh, think of um, some elements here that are uh, that could be possibly different. Well, I mean, for one, yes, the incident that took place on March 5th, 1770 happened in Boston, But then I'm sure some of us are wondering, well, why would we need to possibly think about getting jurors from outside of Boston? Well, if I tell you any more, then there might not even be a need for me to uh, podcast um, in this uh, episode. I also know that we will need to um, focus on uh, the strategies that the prosecution and the defense uh, devised uh, with regards to the trial of the soldiers. We might be surprised to find that one side did not um, develop a um, a clear approach behind what they were trying to get at, whereas the other side took advantage for all the right reasons in going forward and being able to persuade 
the courtroom or members of the court, uh, whether they were um, spectators, including jurors and judges, as to what really happened. In other words, could it be that one side egged it on to where the other side had no other choice but to um, to take matters into their own hands and um, in terms of their uh, public safety? So we have a lot of ground to cover, folks, but I think we are definitely going to be able to get it done within the amount of uh, allotted time that is uh, required. So let's go with our first uh, leadoff question here. After getting acquitted by the jury, where did Captain Thomas Preston venture to? Where do you think he would have ventured to, folks? Well, for Captain Thomas Preston, he went straight to Castle William. You know, Castle William has been mentioned quite a bit in terms of uh, barracks lodging. It's uh, one of those places where uh, soldiers have probably sought um, shelter, uh, refuge. So it, uh, Castle William has definitely um, seen its um, fair share of, um, of uh, highs and lows. Even, um, you know, Governor Thomas Hutchinson and uh, what's-his-face, uh, the former uh, governor, uh, Francis Bernard, uh, had to, um, had to uh, seek shelter at Castle William uh, in the midst of all the uh, chaos and, um, and, and violence, I should say, in terms of protests. So, yes, for uh, Captain Preston, he went straight to Castle William, and he remained there as long as possible, folks, which included avoiding all civilian friends within town. It might be fair to say that there were those whom probably would have supported uh, Captain Preston even in the midst of an acquittal, but Captain Preston also knew that there would have been those whom he had known before the shooting, whom he did consider as his friend or friends, whom would have uh, possibly turned on him. So for Captain Preston, I think he made the smart choice in staying put at Castle William for as long as possible, because no matter where he could have gone in town, he probably knew that he would that his life would have been in danger. Because we did learn from a previous podcast that uh, the longer Captain Preston remained in jail, the greater he uh, actually feared for his life. As for the eight soldiers under Preston's command, uh, they remained behind bars for another month. So they, they are behind bars for another month, folks. I mean, you know, Captain Preston's trial ended in uh, late October of 1770. So for the soldiers, they're going to have to wait another month. Uh, who knows when their uh, trial could start in November. But I can't imagine, you know, here you've been in jail for some time and now all of a sudden you've got to wait another month. So for the troops, you know, it's one thing, yes, despite Preston, despite the ca their captain being Captain Preston getting a acquitted of ordering the troops to fire. But as for the troops, they have to wonder, number one, who's going to defend them? Well, they already know that uh, a man by the name of John Adams will be defending them, but they also have to wonder what kind of strategy can John Adams provide us that will work to our advantage. So as for the troops... Or for the estate of the troops, what it will come down to, more than likely, is a measure of self-defense. In other words, did the troops act in a reasonable manner 
in terms of uh, not only looking after their own safety, but also did they act accordingly in holding their ground? And we'll talk more about that here in a little bit. Now, did the second trial involving the troops comprise of jurymen, or I should say jurors, from inside or outside Boston? This is a trick one, folks. You know, I think we would all be inclined to think that no matter how many trials, well, this is unique, folks, because I, I don't know if there had ever really been a situation in America up until 1770 where there had been two trials involving one matter, one particular matter, I should say. But what do you all think? Did the second trial involving the troops comprise of jurymen, or I should say jurors, from inside or outside of Boston? It turns out, folks, believe it or not, all jurors came from outside of Boston. There are some reasons for this, folks. I know of one reason off the top of my um, hat. Could it be that if uh, jurors from Boston presided over this trial, could it be that um, the judges feared that the jurors would be showing uh, a great amount of bias? Perhaps so. In other words, if you selected jurors from Boston who remained loyal to the townspeople, that is, the townspeople who felt uh, victimized by the presence of troops, then there would be... Um, then there would be a sense of bias. In other words, there would be um, the opposite of voir dire. Voir dire is the practice of uh, impartiality where you're not uh, favoring a side. You are you know, being as neutral as you can. But the last thing the judges need are jurors that are going to favor one side over the other. So that's one factor. But um, I also know that... Um, if there was one particular group that probably had a lot of opposition to the idea of having a jury whom wasn't directly connected to Boston, that one organization which would come to my mind would be none other than the Sons of Liberty. Rightfully so. You know, the Sons of Liberty, yes, that it is a radical organization. You know, even in 1770, folks, John Adams, yes, he, he knows his cousin Samuels and the um, Sons of Liberty. He knows Paul Revere is Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, James Otis Jr. And he's friends with all of them. On the other hand, John and Samuel do have differences. But at the same time, their differences... They do make up for their differences, which is a very good thing. But um, John Adams does not partake in the radicalism of the Sons of Liberty. He's not caught up into all the hype like the other men are whom I've just described. But as for Samuel Adams, he was vehemently opposed to the idea of having a jury which wasn't directly connected to Boston given none of the jurors had any direct relations residing in the town where the troops had called their makeshift home since October of 1768. Now, yes, I can totally agree with where Samuel Adams would have been uh, vehemently opposed to the idea of, of uh, having a jury 
that wasn't directly uh, connected to Boston in this case. But Samuel Adams could be wrong on the other hand, where it turn where it could turn out that jurors in the case or in the trial of the soldiers either have uh, family extended family living in Boston or have simply have friends for uh, could be due to uh, not just friends from uh, for friendship purposes but perhaps business uh, related purposes but of course if you're Samuel Adams and being a, a true ardent uh, patriot and let alone a radical and you belong to the sons of liberty I think it would be fair to say that you would um, oppose just about anything that uh, would stand out as being different. Had jurors come from towns whose people expressed concerns about the troops as well as vowing their allegiance to the town of Boston? So in other words, had jurors come from the towns whose people expressed concerns about the troops? Yes. Most notably in the towns of Roxbury, Hingham to Braintree. And interesting about Braintree, that's where John Adams uh, hailed from, folks. Uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. Roxbury is on the outskirts of Boston, and so is uh, Hingham. But these towns had all produced committees whom had compo whom, whose peoples had composed uh, depositions, or rather I should say petitions, pardon me, uh, petitions um, written... Um, written pieces of paper where people um, have signed on to something um, either in support of a measure or in opposition, and in this case, opposition. That uh, So yes, uh, a handful of people have um, signed on to the petitions from these towns expressing high levels of anti-soldier opposition, including their sympathies amongst uh, Boston's uh, townspeople, whose lives, in their eyes, have been turned upside down for some time. Well, I think it is fair to say that um, a lot of people's lives have been turned upside down for some time, but it might be fair to say that that the people in Roxbury and Hingham and Braintree, maybe they don't fully realize that there is a large majority of local Bostonians whom have actually learned to get along with the troops. And not so much that they've learned to get along with the troops, but they have allowed uh, some soldiers and their families to come live in their homes. Maybe these uh, people in uh, Roxbury, Hingham, and Braintree don't realize that, um, that baptisms have taken place where churches have actually opened their doors to British troops. There are a lot of unknowns that these uh, people uh, in these towns may not necessarily know about. And on one hand, that could be an unfortunate thing, but at the same time, this is where um, we can see now, even in today's world, this is where we can say that uh, people's um, personal feelings can um, people's personal feelings can be a little raw. I guess they can go unchecked. They can um, they can take on a whole new meaning. I guess without seeing the broader picture. Now, um, interesting enough, for Hingham, Massachusetts, uh, the town of Hingham was home to three jurors. So, interesting enough, uh, three came from Hingham. November 27th, folks, of 1770, that was the day for which, soldier, for which the soldiers' trial began. Just over 80 people would go about providing evidence. 
80 people, just over 80 people, folks, would go about providing evidence in this trial. And where, and as we learned that uh, with Captain Preston, the trial lasted five days for him. Would the trial of the soldiers last more or less than five days? It turns out, folks, that for the uh, soldiers, their trial would last six days. So we've seen two firsts here. We've seen one trial last five days. We're going to now find the next trial lasting six days. And we should again be reminded that in colonial America, trials, 99.9% .9 of the time, folks, did not take more than one day to get resolved. If they couldn't, if the, if the jury could not reach a verdict in one day's time, that would be a re an automatic red flag onto itself. But remember, in 1770, we're dealing with something totally different that 10 years ago, the thought of even happening um, would never have crossed the eyes of the colonists themselves or even to the crown and parliament. So times have changed quite a bit. Now, why would the soldiers' trial take longer versus Captain Preston's? Anybody want to take a guess? Well, I can tell you this much. It's more than one answer. Well, for one, the lead prosecution team needed to prove that the accused on trial were clearly the soldiers whom stood at King Street on the evening of March 5th. So, in other words, the prosecution's got to prove that all of the soldiers on trial, it's like um, picking out suspects from a... Um, from a line. In other words, you have suspects lined up and the um, the victim or the accused has a right to uh, point out whom they uh, believe was in fact the perpetrator that um, assaulted them or um, or did something um, heinous to them. As, as That's as far as I'll go. So for the prosecution, they've got to really uh, make sure that they've got the right soldiers. Secondly, uh, lawyers on both sides agreed that each could bring about evidence from brawls to conflicts taking place around Greater Boston on March 5th. Okay, so it's good to know that both sides have uh, reached a compromise here on what they are going to be allowed to do. Now, for all the testimony depicting the threats and conflicts beyond the confines of King Street, Testimony emerged, or let alone, I should say, prevailed, where a broad array of connections between the soldiers and townspeople did, in fact, stand strong. November 27, 1770, the first day of the second trial, the trial of the soldiers, Samuel Clark, he was a witness for the prosecution, he was asked to point out soldiers he had seen on March 5th. It just so happens that Mr. Samuel Clark knew whom Private Hugh White was. He knew that Private White was uh, the guardsman on duty. But he did reveal that nobody was actually near Hugh White on the evening of March 5th. The lawyers for the prosecution, a.k.a. the Crown, this is where the first of a handful of mistakes are going to come about for the prosecution, folks. Lawyers for the prosecution, a.k.a. the Crown, were not interested in how Clark and how Mr. Samuel Clark knew Private Hugh White. Well, if they're not interested in how Mr. Clark knew Private Hugh White, 
and what had they uh, focused their intentions on, the current state of affairs, the calm setting onto itself. In other words, if everything was calm around Hugh White's way, then where was all of the um, scuffle? Where was all of the commotion taking place before it got to King Street? Is it fair to say by the second day of the soldier's trial that the prosecution had completely ignored all social ties which Bostonians admitted having with troops? I mean, do you all think it's fair to say by the second day of the soldier's trial that the prosecution had completely ignored all social ties which Bostonians admitted having with troops? That's a definitive yes. And, you know, when I, was, when I first started podcasting nearly three years ago, when I uh, talked about Dan Abrams as John Adams under fire with the Boston Massacre trials, something I just didn't really pay much attention to then, I, I can't remember if Dan Abrams emphasized it. If he didn't, then it's okay. But I really, have, uh, but I really did pick up on it more so in uh, Serena Zabin's book that we're discussing about the Boston Massacre of Family History and that the prosecution folks really did ignore all the social ties which Bostonians did in fact have with the troops. In other words, the prosecution really wanted to convey that the entire British army were a bunch of thugs, that they were monsters, that they just wanted to make life miserable for everyone whom called Boston their original hometown. But isn't it fair to say by now, folks, that um, that while, yes, there are those whom, whom have remained in steadfast opposition to uh, the presence of troops in Boston, that the majority of Boston's townspeople have graciously welcomed them in, may not have been all wholeheartedly welcomed at first, but they have made modifications and have actually learned to coexist. I would say it has happened. It may not be the most perfect of accommodations, it may not be the grandest, but it's about as good as it can be given the circumstances that the town of Boston is experiencing. If we take a witness named uh, John Danbrook, he, uh, being that he is a witness for the prosecution, he um, revealed that he knew two of the accused eight soldiers being Privates John Carroll and James Hardigan. Mr. Danbrook revealed having seen only peaceful activity throughout the streets. Samuel Hemingway, not Hemingway, folks, but Hemingway, H-E-M-M-E-N-W-A-Y. Mr. Samuel Hemingway was another prosecution witness. He said that uh, he knew a soldier in... Um, Private Matthew Kilroy, whom admitted on not wanting to miss out on having a chance to attack the townspeople. The prosecution focused on Kilroy's intentions. So, in other words, the prosecution was more concerned about Matthew Kilroy's intentions instead of how he and um, Mr. Samuel Hemingway met one another. Okay, you can focus on one's intentions all you want, but how they how one person from one side meets the other from another side 
even that is a story unto itself that can be either just as powerful or it can have more uh, clout over what um, over what one soldier's intentions were. Because it's one thing for a soldier to say something, but it might not automatically mean they're going to carry out with it. What's important about the number uh, 34? It's the total number of witnesses the prosecution called to take the stand. Witnesses' uh, testimony for the prosecution comprised of minor details pertaining to size and people's behavior on King Street, including streets nearby or adjacent to where the shooting occurred night of March 5th. As for Samuel Quincy, who is the assistant prosecuting attorney to Robert, to the head attorney of uh, Robert Treat Payne, Samuel Quincy rested his case based upon witness testimony confirming that, that some form amongst the accused soldiers had in fact fired into the crowd killing five townspeople. In other words, Samuel Quincy couldn't confirm directly that all of the soldiers had fired into the, into the crowds, but he could only confirm that only a few handful, maybe half of those troops, had in fact fired. Because even uh, witnesses, even when I read Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire with the Boston Massacre Trials, even uh, witnesses for the prosecution could not recall exactly how many shots were fired. They could not fully recall how many of the soldiers did in fact fire into the crowd. It's really hard to say when you consider how many objects were being thrown and just how quickly everything unraveled within a matter of seconds. And yes, folks, we can all say that um, that Captain Preston did not line his troops up like they would be going into actual battlefield and say, soldiers, present your arms, make ready, take aim, fire. It didn't happen, folks. No matter how passionate we feel, it just didn't happen that way. Now we're going to move on to the defense side. Uh, when the defense opened up its case, what approach was taken? Well, for attorneys John Adams and Josiah Quincy, wait a minute, we've got another fellow by the last name of Quincy? Are they related? Well, it just so happens, folks, they are. Josiah Quincy and Samuel Quincy are brothers, and what do you know? They are on the opposite sides of this case. I should keep in mind, folks, that uh, in colonial days, well, it might depend on the town you're living in, you know, Philadelphia, uh, for example, you might have a greater um, number of uh, individuals practicing law in Philadelphia, given that Philadelphia has a higher population than Boston. But we should keep in mind, folks, that uh, most towns do not have, like what we know today, as multiple law firms within a certain um, radius, or within a specific radius, I should say. So, we should also keep in mind, too, that lawyers like John Adams, uh, Josiah Quincy, they are specialized in more than just one area of law. They pretty much have to um, take part in um, every uh, form of, of, of the law that there is. So uh, for John Adams and uh, Josiah Quincy, they intended to come up with a solution where the soldiers were forced to stand their ground, 
or I should say they were forced to stand their own ground, a.k.a. means of self-defense. For the defense, they wanted to see this greater conflict as two-sided, a two-sided approach, the soldiers versus the civilians. Well, who are the civilians in this case? Well, I might not want to give it all away now, but I could just say this much. The civilians, we can narrow it down right here, folks. The civilians are not the entire townspeople of Boston. I'll tell you that much right now. I think it would be fair to say, though, too, for years, the textbooks had told us that 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 if we had learned that it was a two-sided approach, that it, you know, given it was the soldiers and the civilians, we would have all been led to believe that the civilians, meaning that it was the entire um, town, the entire um, level or uh, group of all townspeople making up um, Boston. But we will find out here soon that whether or not that holds up to be true, but something tells me it may not. Defense attorneys John Adams and Josiah Quincy brought in or just over 50 witnesses to testify, which took up to three days. The first set of witnesses revealed how they observed large numbers of townspeople in the streets, equipped with items from sticks to clubs. These are people, folks, whom... Um, don't believe in probably engaging in any kind of reasoning. These people whom are carrying sticks and clubs, it may not be right to judge, but I do wonder if these are the types of people who uh, don't want any resolution. These are the types of people whom are, whom are what we might consider as modern-day extremists who simply just, um, they just have a, um, they have a passion for vengeance, we'll put it that way. So, a fellow by the name of Mr. Archibald Gould stood near Fanul Hall from the southern end of Boston on March the 5th. He came upon scores of Bostonians armed to where he was afraid to return back home. He eventually made his way back home, folks, but literally, the scores of Bostonians armed with, uh, sticks, to with sticks and clubs, I think that would, that would create uh, panic amongst those whom are not partaking in this event because they had never seen anything like this before. And if there had been a conflict beforehand, it would have been resolved in the town hall meeting. Now, uh, you know, for people like Archibald Gould, he is seeing everyday people. And for all we know, he maybe some of those people whom are partaking in this could be people he knows that might be either living on his street or not far from where he resides. But the bottom line is seeing multiple people with sticks and clubs ready to take matters into their own hands. It's a very, very um, frightening scene, even for 1770 standards, folks. Other witnesses spotted, per their testimony, multiple fights in the alleys and streets north and east of where the guardsmen stood along King Street. I'm beginning to wonder, folks, if what happened on um, King Street, the night of March 5th, 1770, was really the, the final straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, that's where the Customs House was. Of course, the Customs House is almost like the prized house on King Street. The Customs officials you know, trying to collect the taxes, bringing in the taxes, all things money-related that um, that the unruly crowds don't like because they view tax collectors as uh, selfish individuals whom are um, 
whom are netting their what we think of they're filling their wallets with uh, hard-working people's money if that's if that's how you want to uh, interpret it but um, but the bottom line is there were multiple fights in alleys and streets well uh, north and east of uh, King Street that were really the uh, precursor incidents before uh, what led up to King Street and the fact that witnesses for the prosecution could not tell jurors or the jury that there was a conflict elsewhere, that's a red flag for the prosecution. And the defense now, folks, is taking advantage of this left and right, all for the right reasons. So witnesses also testified for the defense that they came upon young teenage boys hurling snow and ice along with shells and sticks. Witnesses saw the crowd grow from 60 to 200 people getting nearby the troops with chants of fire fire wow if you're going to start chanting that you really are going to be asking for even more trouble i mean this isn't from this isn't this we can't compare this to that uh classic 1980s movie a christmas story with peter billingsley where you know uh ralphie and his uh friends uh they were on their way to school and one of the boys Triple dog dared the other to stick his tongue out up against the pole. And what what do you what happened, folks? For those of you who remember the movie, the boy who stuck his tongue out uh, up on the pole, his tongue got stuck, and they had to bring an emergency crew to remove his tongue from the pole. So, folks, this is not I triple dog dare you when you're they're chanting fire. These people mean it, but we also have to wonder. You know, the more you keep chanting fire, you just and, and hurling objects at the soldiers, you might just be asking to have your life uh, be taken from you. You can you can vent your anger all you want and be angry at the presence of troops nearby, but the bottom line is that uh, the troops are there for a reason, folks. If you want to assemble and petition, fine, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment, but. There has to be accountability even when it comes to assembling and petitioning. Defense witness uh, by the name of uh, Catherine Field, she told the court that one man on the street come the evening of March 5th had intended to go out fully armed, being Mr. Patrick Carr. But Catherine's husband and two neighbors advised him to leave his sword inside. Well, that was a smart move. However, uh, Mr. Carr did partake in the um, protesting. And he was one of uh, one of five men whom were uh, shot, folks. The irony to uh, Patrick Carr was that he lived nearly two weeks after this shooting. And I'll make sure to talk more about him um, when we get to the, um, the epilogue of this uh, podcast book topic series. But right before uh, Mr. Carr died... He did provide enough evidence to British personnel, and this is powerful, folks. Uh, Patrick Carr provided enough evidence as he um, lay on as he laid on his deathbed, fighting for his life. He told British the proper uh, British personnel authorities that the civilians and not the soldiers were the ones whom instigated the trouble. Now it seems like British personnel finally have someone from the opposite side who, who is willing to cooperate. Someone who 
who knows a little bit more than what the others really would like to tell in terms of telling the greater story. We also have uh, learned before in times past, um, and I know I mentioned his name when I did um, John Adams Under Fire, uh, my first podcast series. We um, had talked in that series about uh, one. Of, we talked about all those uh, five individuals who were victims, but I'm going to mention this fellow's name again, uh, Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks. Um, had, uh, his career was that of being on the dock in terms of being a sailor, a rope maker, uh, a whaler. You know, he took he partook in um, expeditions going out into the heart of the Atlantic Ocean, um, bringing in uh, whales, and, and believe me, folks, uh, hunting for whales, I should say. Which, uh, and we should be reminded that when people hunted for whales, one of the things they uh, used uh, was a the spermaceti from a whale that was used eventually to um, make uh, candles or used to convert uh, for whale oil or for um, oil and, and lighting purposes, uh, for oil, uh, oil lamps. But anyways, Crispus Attucks was a man of African and Native American descent. He was one of the five, he was one of five whom died in the Boston Massacre. He had been seen by a handful of defense uh, witnesses whom whom took the stand, uh, I found it interesting that one witness saw Attucks placing his full weight on a stick, which he held, while another witness revealed that Attucks neither spoke nor hurled any objects at the soldiers. Interesting. Uh, that should tell us right there that, as sad as it was that perhaps Crispus Attucks died, and yes, he was voicing his opposition at the presence of British soldiers. We should be reminded that even those, that there were a few, maybe it's fair to say that uh, Patrick Carr and Crispus Attucks may have been the two uh, out of the five whom did not hurl um, objects at the soldiers, and yet they sadly lost their lives. Now, whom did uh, John Adams uh, target in regards to civilians? Now, I had mentioned this earlier, folks, that, um, you know, we had always been told for years that, uh, that the conflict was between the soldiers and the civilians. But even when we say soldiers versus civilians, uh, civilians, that's um, vague onto itself. So we're going to need to better define whom John Adams is targeting in regards to uh, civilians. John Adams went after civilians considers, considered uh, to be outsiders. Outsiders. Well, does that automatically mean that they could be not from Boston? Perhaps so. Or maybe uh, somewhere north of Boston, like Marblehead or Salem. Or somewhere on uh, south of Boston, like Taunton or New Bedford. But anyways, John Adams um, went as far as... Um, going after civilians considered as outsiders from tradespeople, like rope makers, Irish people not native to Massachusetts, including most of all, and probably the best of them all, rowdy sailors. And sailors, folks, uh, were a tough crowd of, of people to deal with. As a matter of fact, tavern keepers 
not to get off subject here, but tavern keepers were very uh, leery of giving money to sailors, most notably credit. How so? Well, let's say you've got a sailor by the name of John Smith staying at your tavern. He's due to ship out in about a week or so. But all of a sudden, John Smith doesn't have the money to pay you back. So, in other words, you're going to have to see to it that John Smith stays until he can pay, he can come up with the money to pay you back. And by doing so, that also means that John Smith's um, crew will be held up because their um, mate has um, jeopardized um, not only so much their well-being, but has jeopardized um, the mission itself because he has chosen not to fulfill his uh, responsibilities. So lending money to sailors, or I should say giving them credit, uh, was always a risky thing to do. But nonetheless, uh, sailors were um, considered in the eyes of John Adams to be very rowdy individuals whom uh, were known for causing um, conflict from all um, levels. So these people that I've just uh, mentioned in terms of uh, civilians in the eyes of John Adams were responsible for, attack, for attacking the troops on King Street. Soldiers were not meant or portrayed to be viewed as instigators nor friends. They were meant to be used as a measure for restoring order when peaceful assembling to petitioning got out of hand. It was one thing for these people, folks, to assemble and petition, but they got out of hand, folks, by throwing objects, objects of all kinds, blocks of ice, snowballs, clubs, sticks, oyster shells. You know, think about it. Private Hugh Montgomery got knocked down, and that's when he took it matters into his own hands by firing into the crowd once he got up. He took all he wanted to take. Of course, Captain Preston didn't give the order, folks, but it was the soldiers who finally decided to take it upon themselves to fire right back into the crowd, and look what happened. Unruly crowds. Not just so much an unruly crowd, folks, but their dangerous behavior or behaviors led John Adams to tell judges and the jurors that the soldiers' lives were at stake, and therefore the soldiers not only had to properly defend themselves, but take necessary and appropriate action to ensure the town's greater safety, but also ensure that Boston as a, as a town wasn't being governed by mob rule. In other words, it's bad enough that we may have a tyrant 3,000 miles across the ocean who has constantly okayed Parliament to uh, pass legislation taxing us without our consent. But what does John Adams not want in Boston, folks? He doesn't want 3,000 tyrants governing the town of Boston. In other words, he doesn't want the town of Boston to be governed by uh, mob rule. In other words, people whom don't like order, people whom don't like any kind of structure. They want it their way and nobody else's way. So, yes, it's bad enough you have a tyrant 3,000 miles across the ocean, but if you've got 3,000 tyrants in Boston all being um, run by mob rule, unruly crowds, you've got, you'll, have prob you'll have problems that could be close to 100 times worse than the presence of British troops. That's just me, but if I was in the eyes of John Adams, that's how I would see this. 
The soldiers uh, firing into the crowd was at best seen as something today called stand your ground. Adams saw the mob crowd comprised of peoples whom found fault with everything. And most of all, it might be fair to say that the mob crowd was like a crab in a barrel. Maybe they just couldn't stand the fact that both sides, being the British Army and many of Boston's townspeople, actually did learn how to coexist together. So if that's the case, then we can definitely say that the mob crowd was, in fact, their own version of what we think of as a crab in a barrel. And one thing I've learned about that phrase is that it doesn't always pertain to someone living in a bad part of town. I've come to the realization, uh, not trying to get political folks, but I've had to remind myself that, uh, that there are people living in nice um, parts of town, suburbia, whom are not happy with other people when it comes to success. It doesn't make it right, but I, we just need to be reminded of it. And we should be reminded that in 1770, for those whom did not like the idea that British troops were there on their own home soil, they also did not like the fact that British troops and many of Boston's townspeople did manage to peacefully coexist for an extended period of time. Given the entire jury was comprised of men from outside of Boston, what thoughts might have been running through their minds? Now think about it, folks. If you're a juror and you're from outside of Boston, what might be running through your mind? Well, for one, we could say that all of the jurors weren't inclined to have had any compassion for the troops, but instead they were required to view them as a separate class from everyday people. They were forced to distinguish or to separate the two. Okay, we've got the troops on this side. Now we've got the civilians. We've got to find out what caused the straw to break the camel's back. Secondly, their feelings laid directly with Boston. Well, if you um, feel as passionate as you do, then I guess your feelings are going to lay directly with Boston. However, in order for an acquittal of Boston to happen, it's also going to mean clearing troops of all accused wrongdoings, as well as seeing troops on one side versus civilians on the other. John Adams knew and understood the connections already made between the troops and the townspeople. He knew all of that was important, but he wanted to focus on something different, folks. And this was where, and this was of great greater um, relevance. His focus needed to be upon strangers from within unruly mob crowds. In other words, I'm thinking John Adams. I'm beginning to think John Adams knows that perhaps the unruly crowds might have been the ones that um, could have ruined everything that had been going so well modified. Although the intended purpose behind the trials sought to figure where direct blame lied as five people died, the end verdicts did not tell much about what actually took place on King Street March 5th, but more so about what was hidden so in other words, we never really uh, understood 
up up until the time that the defense uh, brought their case before the jury and the judges or the jurors, the judges and the uh, jurors, I should say, pardon me, we didn't really know that um, witnesses on up until the time the defense made their case that there had been far more violent activity north and east of King Street. Why the why witnesses from the prosecution couldn't tell couldn't tell the uh, jury, the jurors and the judges that it, it it makes no sense. But that's what happened. So although the intended purpose behind the trial sought to figure where the direct blame lied as five people died, the end verdict simply did the ending, or I should say the final verdict simply did not tell much about what actually took place on King Street March 5th, but more so about what was hidden. Privates, um, I know I mentioned their full names in a, a podcast episode some time back, so forgive me if I'm not mentioning some of the names, full names here, but I will be mentioning the last names of a few uh, men that um, were, in fact, um, cleared, believe it or not. Privates Wems, McCauley, White, and Hardigan were all cleared. So, in other words, folks, we are now getting, uh, we're starting to see an acquittal of soldiers. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, that's not fair, given that they fired into the crowd. I can sympathize right there, but... There is, um, there is going to be some uh, consolation here. Two of the soldiers, being, met, mis, being Privates Matthew Kilroy and Hugh Montgomery, were found guilty of manslaughter. They could have been found guilty of murder, folks. And if they had been found guilty of murder, guess what would have happened? They would have faced death by hanging. But because they got found guilty of manslaughter, each man got branded on the thumb. M for manslaughter. M could have meant for murder, but in this case, it's going to represent manslaughter. So, there was, we can say that there was justice to a degree issued, and that two of the soldiers were found guilty, and I am, and I do applaud that the jurors um, reached that, um, came up with that approach, because yes, Private Hugh Montgomery, yes, it didn't make it right that he had been pelted with objects and fell to the ground, but he did reveal early on in the evening, or maybe the day before, he did reveal that there was going to be bloodshed on this night. And he obviously took a lot of pride in it. Matthew Kilroy was the same way, too. He had been boasting about how he wanted to hurt people. So, if you have um, okay, eight soldiers on trial and uh, two of them were found guilty of manslaughter, then we can say that... Um, 25% of the troops were found guilty. 25% is better than nothing, folks. And the irony to this, folks, is that given that Captain Thomas Preston, uh, given that the trials were separate, it just so happens that at the day after uh, the verdict was reached for the soldiers, Captain Thomas Preston boarded a boat and returned to England and never came back to America. The trials alone showed how divisions existed within the greater town, despite many on both sides learning to coexist with one another. But the massacre incident sadly made it clear that whatever peaceful relations existed prior to and on the night of March 5, 1770, would be forever altered. Sadly, it couldn't go back to the way it had been um, 
when the British troops first came in late October of 17, or the start of October 1768. In other words, really in a sense, folks, for about maybe two and a half years. Well, I take it back, folks, maybe uh, not even two full years, one and a half years. We saw some form of uh, peaceful coexistence. And yes, the death of 11-year-old Christopher Sidair on um, February 22nd of 1770 marked the start. But less than two weeks later, a massacre happened that ultimately uh, was that uh, final uh, blow, or I should say that final straw that broke the camel's back. And three months after the soldiers' uh, trial ended, uh, Boston officials started uh, commemorating the Boston Massacre by going by doing an event with a speech or a tribute remembrance which became a traditional festivity in a short matter of time friendships marriages to births and baptisms soon became something of the past it was no longer viewed as relevant uh, traditions or practices you know a, a, a a local Bostonian woman marrying a British um, officer. People from both sides coming together to celebrate the Union. That doesn't exist anymore, folks. In a short amount of time, all of those traditions are gone. It's almost like a sense of innocence was taken. I I'm beginning to wonder if what happened on March 5th, 1770 was like its own version of 9-11. Yes, there was tension. Yes, there were those whom did not like the British in terms of British troops being present in Boston. But yet there was a sense of um, peaceful relations, a sense of coexistence that did manage to, um, to be accepted and tolerated. And yet it was all taken away because of what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770. The disappearance of greater family networks meant fewer to to know to uh, hardly any women both civilian and military being a part of the uh, greater network structure lawyers on each side eliminated what they already knew existed high level concentrations of civilians linked to troops within the greater british army the trials both trials, I should say, obliterated all existing states of peace within the town and instead helped chart a new course. And what would have been that new course, folks? The road to something radical. The gradual and eventual severing of all direct ties to England, the mother country. Folks, it really is um, hard to believe that it can only take one incident to shatter everything. And yes, it was great that all these peaceful ties existed, relations. No matter how strong those relations were, yes, we've learned that not everything uh, changed overnight, but it is going to change. And it's going to change to where it will not be able to be the same like it had been within, um, within that time frame of late February 1770 into... Uh, the start of March 1770, really within a, a two to three week span, but more so within less than a two week span, everything changed.
And it's like that saying, for better or for worse, but this was probably, in my opinion, for worse. Because in 1770, most people would not even want to think of severing ties with England. Yes, they didn't like those the Townshend Acts. They didn't like the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act. Because they, they all knew it was a violation of improper um, practices when it came to uh, improper consent, given that uh, the colonists had not been able to send people 3,000 miles across the ocean to um, to re represent them on their behalf. But but what they didn't expect to have happen is for uh, an incident like what happened on March 5th, 1770, to where um, the peace itself would never be the same. And yes, there would always still be the hope that there could be reconciliation, but as time will go along, after 1770, reconciliation will have to be a work of art onto itself, but there's no guarantee that reconciliation will ever be 100% better. It could be 25% better, maybe 50% if you can get to that threshold, but it, may, but it will never reach the 100% threshold mark. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and folks, when I'm on the air again next, we're gonna, uh, it, we will be discussing the epilogue to the Boston Massacre of Family History. It's been quite a ride, to say the least, but it has been a ride that's been well worth it. I wouldn't have traded this uh, for anything else. Thank you for your time, as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.